Okay, we are recording another episode of Zoom Town. I am the host, Travis Mateer. With me, Tim Adams. Hola. And he's speaking louder now because we want to make sure that he can be clearly heard as he speaks his wisdom and perspective from the other side of this table that we're on in downtown Missoula, Montana. In a slightly less smoky day, I actually saw the sky mm-hmm. today, which has probably been a week since I've seen something other than just gray mist all over. My little girl was pointing to the blue, actually, as, as I was driving into town from, from my spot in the county. You come in from a, a fabled land down south called the Bitterroot. Yeah, there's actually a fire monitor station about three miles west of our house. So it tells us very really? particularly, yeah, we're Hamilton, even Sealy Lake. They've been in like the top 10 of the whole United States for low air quality. Do you get then the particulate matter sort of readout? Is that pretty accurate? Um, are they taking readings from there? Or are they, are they doing like visual monitoring for any kind of like fire starts? I don't know. They do like a parts per million uh, measurement. It's like 150 parts per million. You know, um, and you being from Sealy Lake, um, I don't know a lot of people probably, unless they live here in Missoula, in Zoom Town, um, probably don't know 2017, the, the Roaring Lion Fire um, and some of the other fires, Sealy Lake probably experienced some of the worst air quality ever yeah. by humans for a sustained period of time. I mean, I'd, I'd have to pull up some articles, but people are actually being studied long term for what that fire may or may not have done to to their health. Yeah, that was a rough year. At first, they were oh, just confined awful. to the house, and then they just told them to straight up evacuate and leave. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There were some people trying to study because the air quality was was so uh, demonstrably bad, and they measured how bad it was. So, Well, I was working at Aging Services at the time, and the health department was able to get some uh, air purifiers on the fly, and we were able to identify some people that weren't able to get out and, and go somewhere else. Uh, and I, I, I think about my own, my own privilege, Tim, my own white privilege. I'm going to use that shit if, if need be, because there's a, a place in Colorado we could escape to. And, and my wife and I were, were talking. It's like, okay, if this is, what, July 20th today, mm-hmm. if this is what it's going to be like until October, um, you know, if, if we have the ability to escape short term, we, we might take that. Yeah, why not? I mean, it, it's a distinct possibility we're supposed to have more rain today. I mean, my phone said 35 to 50 mile an hour winds. Uh, it was it, windy last night. Yeah, we're, we have a slight reprieve, but that doesn't seem to be what the uh, long term is going to be. The other interesting thing is when I looked at the forecast, it had two weeks straight of plus 90 degree days. <laughs> but then once the smoke got in, it actually started blocking out a lot of the sun. And, you noticed and that too. made it cooler. Yeah, 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 we were talking about that, my wife and I, that it seemed very very noticeably cooler because of that smoke just consolidated in the valley it was really nice to breathe a little bit less smoky air but the smoke doesn't keep me from getting out and walking around and i haven't gone out to the the reserve street camps since we last spoke but um there's been some new reporting and that's going to be our first topic we're going to talk about the reserve street camps some of the fire situation as it results results relates to homelessness we're also going to get into the redistricting which you've been doing some work on to create a visual. I know this is going to be an audio file, but we're going to talk about some visual stuff that you're working on in terms of what Montana's second congressional seat may or may not kind of look like. Yeah, I took some time on Sunday to run the numbers and actually see what a new uh, split up of the state would be, uh, trying to use the factors that they've said they want to when they're redrawing it. Uh, Democrats have control, so ultimately I'm just going to guess it's going to go in their favor. So I was like, well, let's actually run the numbers and see where people see fall. See what it looks like. So we're going to get into that. And then um, the prop report, so the propaganda report, I talk about them over and over again. But I had a chance to be on a Zoom meeting 
as a I'm a, I'm a patron saint. I, I support them at the sainthood level wow. now. And I, I did so actually just in order to get access to the Zoom meeting so I could go on one of my kind of rants about what local activism looks like from from the perspective of us in Zoom town. But I'm going to talk about that because it was a, a lot of fun on a Saturday. Do you hear any of that feedback? Are we are yeah, levels d- so good? I've even changed the chords out. I'll fix it and post just... Tim yeah. Adams in amazing support post production to jargon. help to help out. No, I'm just uh, again we're, we are lucky to be able to be here and actually have a conversation every week. Um, there is not something like this really that I have found in the local media landscape. Um, we are we are filling a niche. Isn't I it think. crazy? Because I've been I actually subscribed to the Missoulian so I could read more than one article a month. I need to, to do that get some too. feedback and just see what repetitious things the Democrats have been told to write in the paper. Uh, but they have a podcast. So I actually was sort of doing research on this because Lee Enterprises, which is the one that owns the Gazette, the Missoulian, the Helena. Yeah. When, when you see the same headline on Twitter from like the Helena record and the Missoulian is because Lee Enterprises con- continues to sl- slash and consolidate. Yeah. Well, I just want to look at their financials because one thing that they can't lie about is their filings in the SEC. So if you actually uh-huh. want to see whether they're getting more or less subscribers, uh, you can actually go on their annual filings and look at that. Uh, so I just took a look at their quarter filings um, and they're doing better than they were last year. Part of it is because they've acquired more papers. So this one big media conglomerate that owns newspapers, you know, all over the country got to own some more papers. So well, and, and, and you you did what you did kind of like you know, okay, I need to be looking at um, the local media sources and they are doing what they are doing by making it more difficult to go and like clear your browser history so that you can just regenerate those five free views per month. Yeah. I used to have that little that little technique was, was pretty handy and it stopped working. And, and it's funny because I've talked to other people that are like, I can't read those articles anymore. I'm like, ah, you were doing what I was doing, but okay, you got but, locked out. Let me out. ask you though, are you reading the Missoulian more? Have you purchased a subscription to learn? And maybe Not the people yet. you talk to, because my thing is, is if, if you're in business, you want more eyeballs, you want co- more customers. I was explaining this to my spouse. I was like, I don't know why they're doing this because the whole way that most new newspapers make money traditionally is through advertising revenue. And the right. way that you bump your prices up is by saying, look how many people are reading the newspaper. But if your people are being blocked out because of a paywall, that means the advertisers that you're selling ads for are being shown to less people. And doesn't that make you well, less money? Well, Another thing that, that um, is popping into my head right now, um, I thought at some point when they were first instituting their paywall, there was some sense articulated from the leadership of that, that company that um, some stories would not be behind a paywall. because During there's COVID, a, yeah. The, well, not even COVID. Before that, wasn't there the sense that like some you know election stories uh, during, I mean, the ability to inform the public about what what people are doing in the civic landscape, people going for office, you know, well, and you know what's crazy? Too, All that's behind the paywall now. So much of the content they're running on the Missoulian is just like poached from Daily Montanan or poached from these dark uh-huh. money or like Montana Free Press. Yeah, um, yeah. They just take their content and then put it in the Missoulian behind the paywall. And it's like, uh, I'm sure I there's just some kind read of. It for free on where it originally came they, from. They have to be paying for use, like one time use or something. There's got to be some I don't financial think so. relationship. You look at the Missoula Current and the stuff he reprints. I mean, there's a reason they want it reprinted for free because they want this slight. The eyeballs? Expand well, they, the eyeballs. They know a bit. it's more propaganda than like actual information. So there's a reason they're giving it away for free and don't care to not make any money for it. They're getting paid on the other end by their dark money and yeah. unions and such. So they don't, need, they don't need to make money the way the newspaper does. Well, th- this segues actually this conversation about the media landscape perfectly into our conversation about what's happening at the Reserve Street homeless camps. 
because on Twitter and you know, we're going to talk about Twitter. We'll have to continue talking about Twitter. It's a platform, but I saw someone on Twitter that used to work for the Missoulian. So because we're in a local town, it's oftentimes you kind of know some people. And so I know that she worked for the Missoulian at one point, um, is retired now. But the story that came out was about 16 fires since June, okay? Over 20 fires since the beginning of the year. And uh, I'm not going to say this person's name, but um, she just expressed on Twitter, like, is this true? Is this accurate? And it's, it's funny because it's only been reported really by NBC Montana, um, the full context of, of what's actually happening out there. And so I'm sure because NBC Montana is a Sinclair station, this person who worked for the Missoulian maybe has uh, an inclination to not take that at, at face value. But part of my thinking is, I've been telling you there's like lots of fires going on out there. I didn't know a number because I'm not looking at the, at the stats. But why would you question NBC Montana's reporting of the fact there's been 16 fires since June? That seems like a pretty pretty straightforward thing. But that's just like I think that's where we're at, you know, in terms of everyone's chosen media platforms. You know, this person is going to have more loyalty and probably access to the Missoulian's reporting. And if the Missoulian is not reporting on something, it's not going to be within their sphere of awareness um, versus someone like me that understands NBC Montana might be Sinclair. But do you know what? I'm willing to work with anyone in the media landscape that, that's wanting to talk about what's actually happening in some of these places. Um, well, and, and there are and fires happening. You got to understand a lot of the model of what news uh, gathering has become, because it used to be sort of like detective work. You go out and sort of talk to people. You sort of get a sense from everyday people what you build thinking, a story what's going through on. contacts, right? Yeah. yeah. But now you just go to the courthouse, or or assuming you even leave the office, a lot of times you just email the PR person, be like, "Hey, is this happening? Give me a statement." Okay, they email back a statement. All right, that's the news. And it, it creates this, uh, first of all, like familiarity between the news people and the people they're supposed to be covering skeptically. And then they form this relationship. And that relationship, of course, makes it harder for them to ever cover them skeptically in the future. Or also makes it be like, well, if you if you put something negative in the paper about me, then you're not going to get access anymore. That's it's, something Oh, like man. Everyone talks about the lobbyist, you know, revolving door from government to private sector. But the J school, yeah. the J school reporter comms position for government is yeah. a revolving door. It's like it's like these reporters are young. They come out of J school, right? They get like a Lee Enterprise job, and then part of what they're actually doing is auditioning, right? If if you can show enough sort of like narrative loyalty to the power structure and just be dutiful in the in the regurgitation of the of the PR talking points, then you have that opportunity to get a comms position. So like you know, Allison Franz or Ginny Miriam. Um, and it's interesting because with our mayor, so Mayor Engen, you know, local politics, we got a mayor up for his fifth term. He was a reporter for the Missoulian. Ginny Miriam, his comms person, his public spokesperson, right? She was also with the Missoulian. And, and so it's very interesting as we look at the local power structure and narrative control, this idea of what people even understand is happening on a bridge, on one of the most busily trafficked bridges in the entire state of Montana. Like the reserve street bridge, that corridor is one of the busiest. We are yeah. in the, in the midst of one of the busiest tourist seasons and we've had 16 fires oftentimes closing down an entire lane of traffic of that bridge. And there seems to be large met, like swaths of the public that are fucking clueless that this is even happening. Well, and think about what it says about these two professions. Okay. Uh, traditionally, if you were going to go to college and be like a communications person, your job is to be like someone who spins information. You want whoever your employer is to paint them in the best light, to find some explanation that puts them 
in a favorable light and then to go out and spread that information, whether you work for like a corporation or exactly. a politician, etc. Yep. Yep. Whereas job. a journalist is supposed to, no matter what they're told, be skeptical of it and try to keep digging and then take as much truth as they can find and make it easily digestible for the public at large so they can make good decisions. So those are two very different skill sets, telling people what they want to hear and spinning and lying any way you want versus actually looking for the truth. So why is it that journalists whose primary job is supposed to be skeptical and look for the truth now seem so well suited for the PR flackies? It's almost like well they're just operating said. as PR flackies as, you know, you get what I'm saying. No, no, it's very well said because the way that you frame that, um, you're, you're like, these two things should not be like so synergistic to use like, yeah. you know, synergy is the, and that is just kind of where we're at with the the level of mistrust that exists among a lot of people when it comes to when it comes to the media. Yeah. Um, of course, they have a lot of us have maybe too much trust in other sources. You know, I sometimes when I think about my sort of <laughs> my adoration of Monica Perez and Brad Binkley and the propaganda report, part of that's just such a desperation I have for people that are looking skeptically at headlines and saying these headlines are very valuable because they speak to agendas that are being served. I mean, I don't see that level of skepticism hardly anywhere else, you know? Um, and, but I, you always have to, to sort of not just be reliant on, on just a, a few kind of media sources, right? So there's always that, that challenge as you're trying to maybe, maybe seek for validation for your own narrative bias. Well, and, and one of the things that's been disappointing to me is if you look at like medical principles or journalistic principles or what the ethics of those professions, they're not really changing. They're not dynamic too much. They're pretty much the same sort of bedrock standard principles of objectivity, et cetera, that you want, no matter who the person is, whether they're male, female, black, white, et cetera. There's still this bedrock thing of we need to seek out the truth. We need to be objective. We need to try to not be biased, et cetera. And... <laughs> When people so completely abandon those but still claim them, that's what really bothers me. If you're going to go out in there and be a propagandist... I love and how like, you said that. Abandon those but still claim them. Sorry. Sorry. No, because that's every time. What happens when we criticize education, criticize critical race theory, crit criticize the objectivity of the news? They're like, we're upholding democracy. We're the ones who care about the First Amendment, not these racist white supremacists. We're the ones who care. It's walk the walk don't just talk the talk because that's the real thing is people aren't stupid they can see what's going on and when you sit here and act in such a dishonest way so completely out of the expectations what people need from you because we need a functioning first amendment and a functioning skeptical objective uh newspaper business then to to fall back on that sort of well i'm the one really fighting for freedom and democracy it's like no you're a propagandist you are basically putting forward a religion that you've been taught through your public education and through colleges. That's a rich, rich white people's uh, religion. That, that's what it looks like to me. These people don't... If you look at... Uh, you know Ramadan's going on? Have you kept oh, up with no. this at all? No. So right now there's a lot of things going on with the Hajj. And so the Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam. It says that you're going to... If you're able to during your lifetime, you're going to go to Mecca. And there's like a big black box. Have you ever seen this where they just sort of walk in a circle? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have the whole conspiracy reading on that. But yes, go ahead. Well, it's just part of the religion. They believe that God lives in the black box. It's a box. Saturn time cube. But, but, but continue. Yeah, it's it's... I don't even know how we got here, but it it it's it's just something that was sort of on my radar because it was going on. Actually, I did want to bring this up because I had a very surreal experience well, bef once. Before you go off on that tangent, what, yeah. um, I, I do want to, to, to say, though, because, I mean, I have the benefit of actually knowing some things about what's really going on out of the Reserve Street camp. So so I want to speak really quickly um, because I, don't, I 
there's things that I can't get into specifically, but I am on the verge of almost, I mean, putting a post out there because I have the, the image of, per, of, of a person who I know by name who discharged around June 9th. Okay. So 16 fires since June. Um, I talked to this guy a little bit after his discharge on June 9th, and he's one of two people um, that I suspect might be involved in, in, I don't want to say purposely starting fires, but when you have a fire from propane tanks inside the built structures out there, it's either coming from uh, cooking food. Um, it could be because I, I mean I don't I doubt fires are needed for for warmth right now. Um, these a lot of these Maybe fires are happening. A lot of these fires are happening in the daytime. Okay. Um, and so I mean, and that's why there's been such an impact on traffic. They're closing down. You know, one of the one of the lanes was closed down on a Friday before a busy holiday weekend. Um, and so with traffic almost blocked to the interstate, I mean, so this is pretty significant in terms of functioning infrastructure, right? And, and so I am, I'm very curious what information that I am providing to some people. So I talked to Adrian Beck, um, and provided the name of one person that I'm concerned about. I said, you know, whoever you have to like send this name to, or, you know, give them my phone number, they can call me. I will talk to anyone. Right. Um, we'll see where that goes, but you know, she's pretty limited in what she can do. The, the office of emergency management's role with that incident command team was only a limited four week look at different sites to select. And so their role is sort of done. Operation shelter though moves forward. Um, but what's happening out at reserve street, um, is complicated. I don't want to make too much um, assumptions and, and just, you know, engage in all kinds of speculation, but Another thing I wanted to mention was that earlier today I was on a Zoom meeting. So this public Zoom meeting that I participate in most Tuesdays. And there was a representative from the mobile crisis unit. So the mobile crisis unit, um, something I absolutely support. They do fantastic work. We've talked a little bit about that in terms of their ability to respond to people in mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 911 comes, 911 call comes in. Um, and they are able to pass off sometimes like law enforcement or first responders, they're able to pass off, uh, the, the work being done by this mobile crisis unit. It operates during the daytime primarily. So their 10 month pilot program funding ended. They now have permanent funding. They're looking to expand hours and all of that's really good news. I mean, that's, that's really good news. And one of the things I wanted to just reference, because this hasn't been reported in any media yet, um, is that the mobile crisis unit is starting to self-dispatch. So they're listening uh, to the scanners and they're able to identify some of the, the preventative opportunities that might exist before a 911 call comes in. And that's always something that, from my perspective, working as the homeless outreach coordinator for the Pavarello Center, our, our, hot, our, our hotline. So our hotline was all geared towards prevention. Um, if someone could call us before a 911 call for nuisance issues, then we could respond and, and maybe de-escalate or connect per someone to services, do some simple things so that, you know, first responders didn't have to, to be brought in. Hmm. So I'm really excited to hear that the mobile crisis unit is is looking for those preventative opportunities. Um, they can go and have some of those conversations if they are familiar with people. Another thing that um, I got some information on is the FUSE program, and I can't remember what that acronym stands for, but it's it's intended to identify frequent flyers mm -hmm. um, or high-frequency utilizers of the emergency frequent system. Frequent use. Yeah, these are the, these are the, the buzzwords of the service provider world, so well, high-frequency utilizers. But he explained, like, the criteria is pretty strict. You have to have, like, I think 10 contacts with um, with the ER. Or, I don't want to – I mean, this is just off the top of my head from the conversation earlier today, but – 
Um, it's interesting how that capacity is being built out. My cynicism comes in, though, from the fact that it's a political season. And until November, I've said this over and over again, my interest is my own operation, Operation Abe, anyone but Angan, um, because I have absolutely zero faith um, in that in that politician after 16 years and after knowing what I know. Um, I, I really do not have any interest in seeing him continue being in his position of influence and power. But um, in the meantime, I'm still interested in what's going on among the triage first responders that are tasked every day with responding to the madness of the fact that we have an established homeless encampment, right? One that I helped manage effectively for years. So there were not structures being built. You know, there weren't propane tanks being um, brought out there and pallets of wood being brought out there by service providers, from what I'm hearing. Not helpful to be bringing that stuff, making it easier to build Can I shantytown. stop you for a second? Because Please do. Because one Please thing do. that confused me is you're saying that the mobile crisis center is monitoring the police scanner? That was my understanding. He, he, the person that was um, talking specified the what they were listening to, um, and so I could get that specific information. Because then but, you also said that they didn't call nine one one, but typically so there's some chatter. Be able to police scanner unless they had previously called law oh, enforcement. Oh, good point. Right? Good point. There is something they're able to listen to in terms of the chatter um, that gives them the heads up and ability to do some prevention. So that would actually be something very good for me to look into. Well, and and, I mean, I've worked. Yeah, for nine one one before, exactly. and so yeah. I always thought that you were supposed to use the non-emergency number, and so I always put in my phone in Bozeman Police non-emergency, and there's also one for Missoula. It's four six five five two sixty three hundred. If you ever want to, like sometimes you have stuff that's not an emergency that you might want to talk to. It's about. funny. It's funny because I myself and and um, other service providers, you know, at places like Aging Services, for my uh, recollection. Have, we've tried to use the non-emergency number, and very often you do get um, forwarded to to nine one one dispatch. And so, well, it's the same people answer it. Right. It's just, I mean, usually there's one or two people that does the emergency phones, and they're always there for that. And then there's maybe three or four support positions who are on the radios or typing up. So, things so that number helps automatically indicate if it's coming in that it, that it really is someone trying to to not use the the emergency. Yeah. In fact, level. you'll usually get a different. Like, okay. if you call 911, they'll be like, 911, where is your emergency? So they get the address first, so they know where to send cops immediately right. as soon as they begin talking to you. If you call them, they'll be like, city, county, dispatch, or, or some sort of gotcha. just to identify themselves and make sure you've called the right place, but it won't be the same script. That is good information for, for our listeners to be aware of. Um, I've, I've unfortunately had to call 911 too often, seeing very, what appear to be impaired motorists. Um, one of the things, if you're ever doing that, um, th nothing will ever happen unless you're willing to sign an affidavit. That's one of the standard questions now that comes in is, you know, are you, would you be willing to sign an affidavit? Basically, if a court case is going to move forward, they have to have a, a little awareness that uh, well, person the person is willing to be a witness. Well, the cop actually witness them themselves, then they can't testify that they saw it. So exactly. if they go there and they're driving fine, for example, they, they you know, you can't go into court and be like, well, I right. saw you. The cops just testified that nothing happened. So that's why they always have to ask you if you're willing to actually go to court. It's an interesting question, too, because I know so few cases of where it's actually happened where someone's had to go. Usually, unless there's actually a collision or some harm involved, they don't even care. Um, more than more often than not, there, there are other interactions a person at that point has had with the criminal justice system. And so whether it's a failure to appear 
um, or some other some other thing on their well, record. Well, that's what's also so. interesting to me about the whole situation is you have all these agencies and a lot of them are really just trying to get someone else to do the job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, Oh, you need to talk to this person. Oh, you need to talk to this person. Well, you know, you know and, and meanwhile, there, there really is public safety um, feelings. I, I wasn't able to find this in the media, but apparently just yesterday, a buddy of mine was saying there was another fire and this one was closer to, to some of the residential houses that are out in the reserve street area. Um, and I also wrote, uh, see, Jacob, Jacob Elder. Um, well, I, was, I just looked up when the city elections are because we sort of talked about that a little bit. So I wanted to see when the actual primary is. And it looks September like, 14th, right? Okay. Is and traditionally, day? according to the law, they start mailing ballots out 30 days before that. Well, actually, they'll mail them maybe a few days before to account for the mail. Uh-huh. Uh, so that means we're at July 20th. We could be three weeks away from people voting. Ooh, and I'm definitely seeing Jacob Elder signs. I'm seeing Danny Carlino signs. I saw Jacob Elder with a with a really great picture of him at the homeless camps. He's a handsome fella. Um, and at this point, I've seen so many handsome pictures of, of the handsome candidate, Jacob Elder. I would love to just kind of cut out his image and just put him places like on top of buildings and like in Brennan's Wave and, you know, just kind of move him around um, different places because... <laughs> Maybe he, you should get a cardboard cutout of him and just take him down to Missoula Landmarks and I get could. pictures and be like, hey, I do you could. know this guy? He's, he's photogenic, he's actually. Okay. Maybe make it through the primary in Tim, Tim, I, I have a great idea. Okay, we've been thinking about different things we want to try out. What Weekend if, what, at Jacobs? Or? What? That, that's, that's an idea. But what if we got the likeness of all four candidates, you know, and we had like a puppet show or something, you know, put them on, put them on sticks and just be like, you know, kind of like a, we'll, we'll have to say it's a parody and it's, it's a satire. We could be like, you know, Greg Strandberg. Well, I really hope we do this. Can we do that? Can we do Sophia that? Sophia, Bulgaria. And they had puppet shows of like their local politicians and stuff just out in the oh, town square. And I was so happy from it. Okay. I, so, so we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be working on like this. This is like old time, like medieval stuff where you go out and just like have a little puppet of the yep. king and be like, rr, rr, rr. okay, so this is a great idea. And we're going to be working on this. And I'm big John Engine. I can barely fit on the puppet stage, but I'm gonna be mayor for real. So we'll have to talk about who, which candidates we want to 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 be. Um, I want to be Sean Knopp because like he'll be like the you know, oh I'm Sean working at this place and I, I'm seeing an open air drug market and prostitution, and and so you can bring just really explicit, awful parody, satirical things into it, but it's gonna be pretty representative, I think. Of what's going See, down what on the I streets, think is missing from politics. This is why we have such a humorless. Like the left isn't Fuck, funny, and the right isn't funny. I, I already told you this. I went down to the the Trump impeachment thing, and I dressed up as a cool. combination of Santa Claus and Donald oh, that, Trump. Okay, that's right. Back in the day, that. that's right. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, especially on the right, we're mocked relentlessly, nonstop at every opportunity. Even today, I get on Twitter. These stupid redneck Republicans won't get the vaccine. It's like. Why is no one doing this back to the left? I mean, they are, but it's not to the level of like we're talking about right now. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I wrote down wanting to talk about disappointment in artists and poets, but one of my, my posts that was just today um, was was discussing how this this poet that I actually really wanted to talk to. I have. Uh, let's see. I have his look at this is his book of poetry. It says Walkman, Michael Robbins. Um, he's written a book of poetry about predator versus alien. So he brings in all kinds of great pop culture references, which I love. Uh, he stopped drinking at some point, which I'm like, right on. He's like, I'm kind of even a Christian. And I'm like, hey, I've never heard a poet like in modern times, like talk about being a Christian in like a slightly even positive way. And so I had all this in the back of my head and, and just all of a sudden then being disappointed when uh, 
when the guy's like, he actually has since, um, I think erased this, this tweet, but his tweet was trying to have empathy for anti-vaxxers dash victims of misinformation, poor education, poverty, etc. dash while also hating them with all my heart, the dialectic, you know, and then, and someone responded to him. No joke. Honestly, have a long-standing dream of writing a book about benevolent mis- mis- misanthropy, a la Mark Twain. Empathy is bad, politically speaking. And I, I just look at that. I'm like, damn, man. Is this where like our poets and poets and artists are, are going to be coming from? And and so as I engage this guy, um, who I still like, and we actually left the tweet talk, uh, wishing each other health and safety. And so I, we were modeling somewhat adult behavior, but. Um, you know, as I'm having a conversation with him, you know, he actually had to sort of back off and, and, and say, well, I guess this guy does have some points. But one of the things I wanted to mention, since we're talking about this really quickly, you know, th- the idea of the slippery slope and what these sudden authoritarians are actually are, are backing. It's not just like going after free speech and censorship, you know, and, and this like, you know, public private corporate fascism. I mean, they're supporting all of that. But you know, eventually this stuff comes back around at them. And I, I'm, I was looking at this book of poetry as I was waiting for one of his replies. And I, I I'm not sure which one, where it is, if I can find it, but um, it mentions his, his sister sending him Klonopin in the mail. You're really above this guy. I don't even know him. I, I know it's a poet thing. Uh, we have tremendous egos. And so any chance to like attack each other, we, we do. We're ugly, ugly humans when it comes to our art. I like his art, but like as a person, he's kind of pissing me off. And it's funny, and I'll, I'll end this because it always does come off as, as juvenile. But um, the, the point I wanted to make is um, fascist authoritarians will look at any chance to go after people that are violating laws, right? Um, libertarians look at uh, some laws like the drug laws and say, maybe we shouldn't do that. But authoritarians like, if I can use this, you know, ah. And if you're sending someone a Klonopin in the mail, that's, that's a crime, Right. I don't think it should be a crime, but, you know, that's sending a controlled substance through the mail um, and, and going to a, a maybe a larger conversation about who actually has our health in our in our our interests in mind. Um, benzos are very potentially dangerous. A local musician, amazing musician. Right. David Boone. He was incredibly negatively impacted um, by not understanding the dangers of, of not tapering off of benzos in a way that is going to not potentially create sort of a tox- toxic withdrawal, um, acute withdrawal issue, problem. Um, and so, I mean, I just think these are conversations that we should be able to have, you know, about what, what people want to do for their own health, you know, what, um, what, what products no. they want to purchase, what products they will put into their, their physical bodies, but it, I, I increase, increasingly, I, I feel like what it must have been like to be a Muslim after 9-11, right? I mean, that's, maybe, I think maybe we, we deserve it, right? To because to acknowledge at some point that the American healthcare industry is much more of a profit-driven model than yeah. it is a healthcare model. Some, Fact is, if you're healthy and eat vegetables and work out enough and aren't stressed out and aren't on pills, you're not making anybody any fucking money. You can't right. patent a tomato. You can't patent lettuce. You can't patent sunshine or, or meditation um, yet. And this is one of my skepticism with people with the trans thing or, or 
you know, what, when you're talking like, about a guy like this, I completely understand that if you get all of your information from what we consider traditional media news sources, it does make sense. Who are these crazy people who aren't getting the vaccine? What, do they hate everyone? Do they want grandmas to die? It's, it's this other thing of just demonizing and making sure anyone who has a different view is just the bad person. Are you the good person or are you the bad? Why? Of course, I want to be well, the well, good person. So, well, so, so the, and this does get personal, right? Because this this comes into play when, it, when, when I have children that, you know, are close to the age or of the age of, of maybe some mandates that might be coming down the pike. And so Michael Robbins responds to me. I had a bunch of interactions, but then at one point he says, those aren't the right questions and you know it. Do I think you're being stupid and irresponsible with your children's lives? And more important, since kids are likely to survive with the lives of vulnerable people they might infect? Absolutely. I sure do. No question. And, and I say this, and I don't want to linger on this too much, but um, the reason why I self-censor, I self-censor, okay? I don't like to write about this topic on the blog, right? Because people that I mostly agree with, mostly align with in a lot of issues, you know, um, J. Kevin Hunt is a candidate for city council, right? And um, his response on my blog post today is the, quote, dangerous experiment, quote, is, in my view, failing to vax one's children and waiting to see whether they get infected, get sick, get long COVID and or spread the virus, you know? And I'm just, I see that and it makes me sad um, because... I have looked into a lot of stuff in the last year and a half. But okay, um, but, and but I talk about like the the poet you're talking about. Right, here. right. Um, you have to realize these people are going to information sources and they are creating a character in their head of what anti-vax people are or what people who are not willing to take the COVID vaccination are. Right. They're not looking at you. You know, Travis Mateer is an individual who's done research and gets different information and looks at it from another way. They're only seeing the straw man that's been created course, and caricature. reinforced. Absolutely. I mean, this is, I look at like MSNBC and Joy Reid and Rachel Maddow, and they're just this like smug self satisfaction and just constant judgment. And nothing for the other side is any good. They should be punished relentlessly until they see it and, our and, way. And it's I want, like, I want to understand. And so that's been, who that guy thinks you are. I've been listening to public radio more, um, actually, intently listening just to, just to kind of get the the feel and the information and whole, I mean I I get after I subject myself to that for long enough um it, I mean it is it is that is scary you know what what is being whipped up in the minds of people in terms of these caricatures and these straw men it's scary when now all of those tweets are deleted he deleted his tweets okay I I didn't delete my tweet um and I don't want the power of the state to force you know, my opinions and beliefs on other people. That's, that's not what I'm looking for. Right. You know? And so when we talk about, um, you know, some of these buzzwords from sort of the, you know, the liberal mindset of uh, in inclusivity, you know, equality, my God, man, those terms are not really being applied in any sane way right now. It's, it is authoritarianism. Okay. It is, um, empowering the government to to join forces with the private sector in censorship. I mean, that's that's fascism. That's corporatism, fascism, whatever you know, sort of ism you want to refer to that. The idea, you know, and actually, you listen to KGVO. I was Peter Christensen or Christian, whatever his name is, KGVO Talkback Missoula. He was fired up the other day. I actually caught it. I don't usually listen to it, but um, talking about the Biden administration and, and censorship. And I mean, it's going to be coming for your text messages. But, but here's this is the thing, though, because I think this is where, OK, 
There had to be a point in your life, Travis, where you felt profoundly betrayed and lied to before you ever even thought of reconsidering everything else, you know, to get to where you are today. True. I had the same thing happen to me where I, I was, I can go find letters when I was like a, a high schooler talking about public lands and evil Republicans. And I, you know, I was gay. So I immediately went to that side, to the rah-rah rainbow flag side. Right, right. And just bought it all wholesale. But you have to get to the point you, you need to have a reason to question things. And if you never get to that reason, especially if you're a beneficiary of these systems, I mean, this is what's really difficult if I think overall. Like, when I was a young man growing up, all my teachers were like, oh, you're going to be so smart. You're going to do so well. But, but who is telling me that? It was almost all women who went to college to be teachers. Okay, so they went and got a college degree, probably at a much cheaper price than you or I got one. Uh, and they got into a profession they loved. Like, why would they ever have a reason to question any of that, much less tell kids not to go be teachers because it worked out perfectly for them? Think of all the teachers or professors at the university in Bozeman or, or Missoula who get paid well, get like four months off, get to do research, get great schedules, benefits, time off. Why wouldn't they tell anyone exactly to go do that? Because for them, it worked out. The real thing is, what about everyone else? Because we look at like... 60 to 70 percent of people now regret going to college and getting their degrees they just don't think it was worth it those people aren't going to go back to the college and go talk to all their professors and be like you fucked me over yeah. you put me in debt no they're so removed from that whole process that the university can keep telling people what a great deal the university is and everyone on that campus is going to agree because it worked out for everyone on that campus but we're supposed to have policy that works out for everybody not just people in government not just people in high-paid professorialships or whatever and, and the fact, this is really the disconnect I talk about with journalism, is if journalists whose entire ecosystem has been the university and government only stay in the university and government and never leave that and never talk to regular people like you or I, they will never get the impression that's anything wrong and they'll become entrenched against us even though it's our complete lived life experience. Oh, so I when we talk about what's coming out of the, out of the university system, um, we're going to have to go back to having a Twitter conversation about what's happening on not just Twitter, but Facebook because <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Maggie Bornstein. Okay. Maggie Bornstein is a product of the university system. She came in 2017 from Massachusetts. Um, and so, I mean, she's entering the Montana human rights network. I've had a lot of interaction, um, just kind of around, uh, her as an, as a politically aware, active, individual um doing and saying things that are are causing some some issues and challenges and so i mentioned jay kevin hunt who's a candidate for city council um and it's it's interesting because maybe before getting into some of this i i talked to this guy on the streets okay um one of our sort of remaining characters sells jewelry pakistani guy if you're in missoula oh, I know you're talking you, about he's you know, been there a long yeah. time i i love talking talking to him and, and he's got a very <clears throat> excuse me you know, comes from Pakistan, and sometimes he talks about sort of his more uh, traditional conservative mindset. And I mean, this respecting your elders is something that's very important to him. And he's told me situations in which he had to control his reaction because he was being yelled at by an older person, and he just has this in, innate sense of respecting one's elders. Yeah. You know, um, life experience. It's a cultural thing. It's makes sense too if someone's lived enough life. Maybe you listen a little bit to them because they're not dead. And so they've done something to survive. But uh, in looking at, at this Maggie Bornstein person, who I think wants, has some aspirations for statewide, 
statewide uh, run. So if you're talking about someone that wants to maybe get this new Congress seat, which we'll, we're going to discuss here in a, in a sec, um, I just wanted to, to to give you like an idea of where this person is at. Okay, so um, from one of her bio pics, she's a uh, Maggie Bornstein. She's currently this is back a couple years ago. She was a sophomore. Um, she's studying African American studies originally from Massachusetts. Um, she got involved with the six mil levy and then also see women's gender and sexuality studies. Sociology has a certificate in global migration studies. Interesting. Um, and I've read all this. I know her whole biography. This is what I'm saying though. This is a rich upper class white girl who was raised in Massachusetts in a rich upper class setting chose to move from a more diverse place like Massachusetts to Montana, where it's still 89% white, pursues African-American studies in a department headed by a white guy, sociology, women's studies. She's dating another hard left Democrat who's also running for office. Like, this is what you got to understand. She is self-selecting. I mean, I don't know, maybe who, I don't know who first put her on this path, but the entire thing has been surrounding herself in this, what is basically to me a religion, a religion of social justice, of helping black people, of helping minorities. So when you go and interact with her, you're not interacting with like two open-minded people who are trying to find out things. You're seeing it from your perspective and she's seeing it from her like naive 20 year old, I'm going to save the world perspective. There's no point at which you two who are so hard in your beliefs are probably ever going to like change each other's minds. Well, and, and I and I offer some direct communication in the post just as sort of um, evidence and example of what these interactions are like. But what I wanted to speak specifically to is the fact that um, another mayoral candidate, so Greg Strandberg, um, he's written a, a blog for, for many years and does a lot of amazing research, right? Um, I know the ways he will be smeared because he sometimes will write insensitive things like he did with this uh, candidate, he was, um, you know, and I, and I read the post and it, it was very insensitive. Um, I don't know the level yeah, of outrage I'm supposed to have. put this in context because originally yeah. um, Maggie Bornstein has claimed that he is homophobic. And Correct. I think most of the people on the left who have seen that post are, are painting him as homophobic. I consider it more transphobic. The specific thing that he did was there was an individual who came here for college who I believe transitioned from a biological female to a trans male. Uh, presents as a trans male, uh, identifies as a gay male, so says that they're attracted to, I'm assuming, cisgender men or other trans men. Uh, And so he just sort of made some jibes about him, her, or his appearance, or uh, whatever it was. Right, It's a kind of a shitty thing to do. I don't... this is where it's weird to be like, personally, I wouldn't just go and make fun of someone's appearance. I, it, it makes no sense to me. First of all, I've been subjected to enough of it in my well, life, and, and especially Don, in politics, to ever do it to someone else. Right, Don Pagrebo, you know, for a lot of times would use these these very grotesque oh, images yeah. of candidates. And so all of this manipulation of, of images doesn't really do anything for us understanding where a candidate might be coming from. Yeah, you'll notice he almost never put pictures out of himself. That's what I liked about the people that are, are totally willing to like just show shit all over and distort right. people in Photoshop and stuff. It's like, oh, my Twitter picture is my eyeball or something. Well, and, and the reason why we're bringing all this into the into the conversation is because, um, you know, Greg Strandberg, he is a candidate, so we are going to be talking about him. Hopefully, you know, one of us yeah, might interview we're, him. We're trying to work it out. He and, might, yeah, we'll, we'll get him on, hopefully, before this primary happens. Because, because he has done a lot of research. He has helped me understand the issues. He's dug into numbers. Um, and J. Kevin Hunt had apparently the temerity... Okay, to step outside of the woke religion um, acceptable behavior and and actually, you know, connected 
his Facebook followers to some information that Greg Strandberg and I both talked about. So um, this this couple in Missoula that seemed to benefit from subsidized housing in ways that I think is pretty ugly and indicative of what well-connected people get to do in, in, yeah. in, a, in a town like Missoula. Um, and so that information is real information. It's relevant and, and interesting information. J. Kevin Hahn has every right as a candidate to bring it up. And Maggie Bornstein said said this, okay, because both myself on Facebook and, and, and Kevin Hunt wanted some evidence, you know, um, and instead of producing a link to this post that Strandberg did, she, she didn't do that. All right, someone else did that on my blog. Um, my blog? But uh, that sounds ridiculous. But so, uh, this comment just shows, I think, what, what we're dealing with, with like these products of the university system right now. So this is Maggie's response to, to John Kevin Hunt. You are an adult with lots of time on your hands. Perhaps you have time to read what is available in local news sources and finance reports rather than demeaning capable and intelligent young women like myself on your friend's gossip site. Strandberg participated in a candidate forum last time he ran that would be revelatory to this issue. And if you think his approach to homelessness is effective and humane, consider filing as an R. And that's R as in Republican. And so, so, so here is J. Kevin Hunt, okay, from this town, from Missoula, right? You know, going for city council, has lots of experience going against uh, gentrification and ta tax increment financing in Oregon City. You know, I mean, this guy is a lawyer, um, you know, was a lawyer and, and is just a very knowledgeable, capable person who understands collaboration, alliance building, that, you know, the fact that, that I saw him um, finding common cause with conservatives like Jesse Ramos over the use of public money. I mean, this is a smart, savvy person who I hope to see be successful in his bid well, to be okay. a city council and here, member. Well, let's talk about a couple of things. Number one, the race is nonpartisan. So talking Good about point. you should file to run as a R, okay, that's physically not possible. So your intelligent young woman should probably learn about the parameters of what actually involves Ooh, filing in the race. Touche. Uh, <laughs> And number two, one thing that really bugs me about people who are so like civically minded is the self-righteousness. Okay, I'm never going to... I'm guilty of that all the time. But, but okay, let's yeah. just say I don't have the uh, time or interest in reading 10 different blogs every day and like five different news sites. And like, how am I supposed to go back and find that city club debate from four years ago? Is it online somewhere? Should I go? I don't even know it existed. How would I even know? The Missoulian won't let me see unless I buy a subscription. They're literally paywalling off information. And she's like, well, you should have all this information to absorb. If, if all you had to do was link to the blog post, then just link to the blog post and be like, hey, maybe you didn't see this, but it is pretty egregious. That's all I did. And, you know, yeah, Pete, Pete Talbot, whatever you want to say, Pete he just Talbot said, no here's problem. the link in yep. case you haven't seen it. Thank you, Pete. I hadn't seen it. I, I'm not an obsessive reader of blogs. I didn't even live here until three years ago, so whatever. And I appreciated Pete Talbot providing that that link because, you know, I got a sense already of, of how Greg Strandberg would be dealt with as a candidate because he's been a candidate for city council multiple times. And so a lot of the, the stuff that for he's... For the ledge, for city council, for yeah. whatever. A lot of the insensitive, you know, stuff that he said, which I've taken issue with in, you know, in the past... Um, at the same time, though, I recognize someone who has actually taken the time to do research has provided really good information. Again, yeah. you know, a lot of this information you can take um, beyond what the messenger might intend. 
you know, do your due diligence, look into the information, and then and then come to your own conclusions. But look at the perspective that she's giving, though. A, that it's all everyone else's responsibility to know everything she thinks she knows. And if they don't, they're like uneducated rubes who are liars. Uh, and B, <laughs> like, why can we not just talk about issues instead of personalities? Like, she's just found this one thing of something Greg put on his blog post and been like, I can write this guy off forever. Nothing is ever going to say has any relevance to me ever more in my life because I put this evil homophobic label and stamped it on this guy and he's the bad guy and I'm the good person. What? It's like, that's not how you run government. That's how you develop policy. That's not how you get people informed. You know, this is like the most basic form of tribalism that, that you can think of as like, we're good, they're bad. And what's so interesting about this, you know, uh, and, and we are talking about this because when you insert yourself um, and you actually do have some amount of influence in a local race, then it, we have to talk about it. And so, you know, Maggie Bornstein did not get on my radar until um, the, the letter she wrote, letter to the editor. And so I had one phone conversation directly with her. Um, she told me at that time that the claims she made that Jacob Elder, another mayoral candidate, the, the leading probably opposer, opposer, um, opposition that, that, that Enkin is facing, um, you know, she made claims in that letter and then told me that or her claims that he's got uh, anti-LGBT and militia right wing funding. Um, she said that that's coming from like her position as an intern at the Montana Human Rights Network. Right. So she is an intern. I had an email exchange with Travis McAdam confirming that. Travis McAdam explicitly stated that um, that Maggie is not working on anything that would give her access to municipal information. I'm, my understanding, I could always read that email, but but that is why this person is now sort of on my radar. Um, Danny Carlino was also involved with Jacob Elder's um, campaign at one point. There was a falling out. Um, and so these are things we're going to continue kind of digging into and looking into. Well, yeah, and maybe we can transition here because yeah. I think one of the things that's really been odd to me is we are currently in what's a transitionary period. So we have a redistricting yes. commission that's going to be meeting. They've already had a couple meetings to sort of issue the parameters of how they want to redraw the state every 10 years. We have to well, redraw we were, all our districts. We were purple. I mean, the, the, the transition you're talking about, we were really were sort of a purple state with some some balance yeah, and, and so she is one of the people, and there's actually been very many. I looked at some pictures of the Pride event that they had in Helena this past weekend and saw Monica Trinnell is running for a House seat and Lori Bishop is running for a House. So All three of the even... Democrats who have announced had like parades or, or were marching for their candidacies, and there were also many other Democrats, uh, Jacob Torgerson. Uh, Interesting. It's weird to me, because, like Shane Morizot, who he got appointed uh, to his seat after losing, and he's already like filed to run. And now I put it on Twitter. I was like, dude, you don't even know where you're running yet. How can anyone be announced for any seat when you don't even know where the boundaries? And that's what are? I was going to ask. It, it, it's weird. I mean, is, is that not not weird? Well, I mean, Maggie Bornstein is apparently running for a legislative district that we don't know where the boundaries are. She just apparently knows the number, assuming they're even going to be numbered that way. If you know our redistricting, we actually had a couple times where we flipped the numbers. It used to actually be like the low numbers were down in Ravalli County up to Missoula and the high numbers were more to the east. And then that flipped a few cycles back. But um, I guess the thing we're going to talk about is what I spent a lot of Sunday afternoon yes. digging into, which was trying to see uh, because you and I have talked about this in, in previous podcasts, and I sort of had a theoretical idea of it, but 
I'd never actually tried to work out the numbers. And the, the issue is the national media is saying that as we redraw a seat, there's going to be a safe Republican seat in the state for U.S. Congress. And there's also going to be either a purple or Democratic leaning seat that the Democrats can conceivably win. And that's going to be one of the big fights we're already having. And the, even the Missoulian had an op-ed saying we need to count prisoners a certain way, which benefits Democrats, of course. Uh, but I, I wanted to run the numbers and see, like, can you build two districts in which a Republican and uh, a Democrat can both win? And so on my Twitter, it's TAdamsMT if you want to go look I'm, at it. I'm looking at it right now. and it's Maybe I'll so have Travis put up a blog post just with the images yes. on it if you want to reproduce some of the Twitter pictures. Yeah, um, But absolutely. it is possible. And so the, the way that this has been drawn is you start down at Beaverhead on the, the southwestern corner of Montana, and then you go east uh, past Bozeman all the way to Park County, and then you cut off at Park. Uh, you go up to Helena through Broadwater County, and you cut off through Helena. And then you also go up through uh, Lake County and Sanders County. So this whole sort of southwestern edge of the state, as you're looking at it, includes Missoula, Polson, uh, Ravalli County, uh, Butte, Helena, uh, Deer Lodge, Bozeman, and Livingston. If you were to draw that those together, and I'm using, at this point, registered voter numbers as well as the uh, votes for the Montana Senate, so Bullock v. Danes yeah, uh, last yeah. year. Interesting. And Interesting. I, that almost, uh, at least as far as the population-wise goes, splits exactly 50-50. And this gives a pretty safe Republican district uh, going from Lincoln County and Kalispell all across the High Line, and then basically... Uh, Great Falls would be included in the Republican district. Uh, it would be just on the edge. Uh, so the Lewis and Clark Cascade County line would be sort of one of the divisions between the two. And by my calculations, uh, it gives the Democrat about a 54 to 46 edge um, as far as the last votes went. Weren't you also, um, refresh my memory, talking about some potential demogra demographic changes in places like Silverboat County because of some of the development that's happening in places like Butte that might not necessarily make it such an automatic, you know, labor Democrat stronghold that, that, you know, some Democrats sort of maybe take, take for granted. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of unknowns in this and I'm sort of controlling for them. So when they actually go to do the redistricting, they're going to be using census data, not registered voter data. So I'm sort of counting that there is a constant relationship between population and the number of people who register to vote. Right. Right. Um, there's also the fact that the last two cycles especially have been very strong for Republicans that of, you know, Republicans won all five seats in 2020 and they won four out of five seats in 2016. Whereas 2012 uh, Republicans, I think only won one seat out of the five. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's hard to know currently whether this is, we are like sort of turning from a purple to a red state. Uh, obviously Republicans are performing well. Um, but, you know, when I look at like a Cascade County, a Great Falls or a Gallatin County, traditionally those have been more bellwethers. So when you look at like a John Tester versus Denny Rayburg race or a Steve Bullock versus Gianforte race, the winner usually carries these bellwether states. And so like Bullock carried uh, Great Falls by 5,000 votes in 2012. And yet eight years later, Danes carries it against Bullock by 6,000 votes. Interesting. And so there is some flexibility in terms of yeah. what these can do. There is definitely a lot of room, especially considering this last election cycle, for Democrats to sort of regroup and come back. Um, and they could gain some, but there's also room for them to lose a bit harder. See, and, and, and this is where this is where I think, you know, some of the trend setting Democrat mentality that emanates from the the communist stronghold of Missoula. Um, 
this is where they just are going to continue poisoning them, poisoning themselves. Um, the this need for Angan to hold on to power is manifesting itself in in conversations I'm having with people that are like, I know a lot of people that they're they won't say what they know, but they're not voting for them. You know, I, I just coming into the studio the other day, I spoke with someone that I used to work uh, work pretty closely with who is, you know, up there in the hierarchy of uh, one of our hospital systems, mm-hmm. right? Um, very knowledgeable person. Um, one of many people I talked to that it, like experienced retaliation for trying to do some good within some of these institutions, right? Yeah. Um, she was saying, yeah, I definitely am hearing lots of frustration from people that that maybe four years ago were not even you know saying it publicly, not not saying it publicly, but saying it like to people. So you know, peer to peer colleagues are having more conversations in places like Missoula. Um, I would say the coverage so far of Jacob Elder has been pretty positive. I I mean, there's obviously covered the uh, DUI and sex assault allegations against him, but I think uh, well, it came out reader, early. It came out early and didn't create a a, a huge necessarily. Um, multiple headline splash, you know? Well, and, and and I mean, this is something I told Jacob when I talked to him privately is you can't just be the good alternative. You also need a reason for people to vote against Angan. And maybe there is enough of that out there that maybe there is enough dissatisfaction with the direction the city's heading, the way he's been spending things, the slush fund we call TIF or the affordable housing or the homeless problem. Maybe there's enough negatives out there to to make the case without Jacob having to do it himself. You know, traditionally you would have like a state party or a pack that would sort of work, you know, not in conjunction with the candidate, but separately in order to build all the negatives. That way the candidate themselves doesn't have to get their hands dirty like throwing mud. But you also have these side entities like the MEAFT, SEIU, et cetera that peripherally will will put the negative stuff out there. I haven't really seen a lot of negative stuff about Engen apart from maybe, you know, the right-wing circles. Uh, but the fact that I haven't seen anything in the Missoulian or the Missoula Current directly, like, attacking uh, Jacob Elder, uh, perhaps is a good sign. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, to but, see how mean, it plays out. We didn't um, hear the Lisa Tripke stuff till ballots went out, so. Right, and in, 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 in Missoula... A lot of stuff get, goes on hiatus, um, but before we had the entire state sort of like potentially on fire, um, summertime really is the, you know, one and a half to two months that a lot of people um, go through the eight to nine months of winter. You know, we, like, you stick around in order to really benefit from getting out camping, enjoying rivers. And, and so for a lot of people, I think it's feeling kind of like a robbery right now with all the smoke and just the nonstop hot temperatures, which are incredibly unseasonal, the heat dome, right? And, and so um, in the summertime, a lot of stuff just goes on hiatus. Yeah. And we will start seeing as we're getting closer to school starting, students back in, um, we will definitely see more and more of a presence. Um, there's some stuff I wanted to say I, I shouldn't yet. I, I'm getting some, some hints of, of some of the, the challenges I think that Engen's going to face. But um, again, from just my efforts to try and land some some interviews with people who have experienced retaliation for the documentary I'm I'm working on, you know I know how reluctant people are to to come forward and to to say you know what they've experienced and, and especially if Engen has four more years, you know I think some people are just sitting back and kind of seeing what's what's going on. But that's why I like to be loud and obnoxious and out there as a disruptor. Uh, because well, people do yeah. talk to me. I just can't always relate all I mean, of that pe- here. This is what has sort of disturbed me in my personal observation. And I, I 
believing that there's like shenanigans going on with the Trump election is no matter what happened, no matter how far the press goes, no matter how far these other institutions have power, we still have the ability to go into a polling booth and completely away from prying eyes, fill in whatever fucking oval we want. And if we just want to put the fuck you oval or the fuck you candidate like Trump, uh, we're allowed to do that. And I wrote in Kanye last last election cycle. I wrote in Hitler on a couple people because I'd rather vote for Hitler than a few people that were on the ballot. Well, uh, this is a perfect segue because I want to talk about what I did Saturday. Um, and I, I want to talk about another one of the things you're not supposed to talk about and might get deplatformed if you talk about. Mm-hmm. And that is questions about the election. You know, that's another entire area that apparently like you really run some risks in not just alienating yourself, um, but getting the FBI to maybe knock on your door. Like, are you one of the January 6th insurrectionists? Like, did one of the snitches tell us about your Legos? Right. You know, some guy that got his his Legos. That th- This is when I, I find it's personal when you're talking about a Lego rendition of the Capitol building being seized by the FBI. I'm like, no. No, you don't, you don't fuck with Legos, man. So um, what I wanted to mention is very like puffing up my own sort of like ego because I am like, we need more attention going on Missoula. Like we need people like, what? What's going on in this little like liberal utopia? Um, holy shit. And so on Saturday, I was able to be part of a Zoom meeting with the prop report. So Monica Perez, Brad Binkley. Um, every Tuesday, they do a share the show Tuesday. Um, it's a great chance to kind of hear what they are how they're approaching stuff from the Liberty perspective. Uh, Monica Perez had a, a show for a long time in Atlanta. I've talked about her before, but I just wanted to sort of reiterate, these are some kick-ass hard hitters in terms of looking at the, the daily headlines and trying to understand where things are coming from. And I have benefited listening to them because <clears throat> they have been talking for years. They've been talking to Garland Favorito. I think I'm saying his name right, but he's uh, part of this, I think like the main guy from the election integrity organization that is doing the challenge in Fulton County. So I've been listening to basically this guy talk about how um, this this court challenge has been tailored, um, multiple affidavits from poll workers indicating that these ballots were not, they saw that were not creased with different paper stock, um, yeah. looked to be uh, machine inked uh, bubbles. Tucker did a thing on it last week. Exactly. Uh, showing how like these ballots uh, were somehow two different ballots, but were marked exactly in the same way as far as the way the marker went right outside right. the bubble and what part of the bubble wasn't filled in, etc. Yeah. So, so Garland Favorito, which um, Garland was not reached out to by Tucker for that for that piece. I mean, this is the the fruits of of um, this guy's like you know legal expertise, legal work. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy's done a lot of work in Georgia um, for election integrity. He has benefited Democrats previously, so this guy really is nonpartisan. Um, and he was on the zoom meeting as well that I was on. So, you know, humble brag, but, um, it's just amazing to me because the way that, uh, Binkley and Perez look at the narrative control, um, part of Tucker's reporting is, is, is this kind of, uh, looking at a straw man claim that Garland has never made. So the claim that Snopes and, and it's out there in the corporate media is that there's widespread voter fraud. And, and um, yesterday's show, Monica Perez and Binkley were saying, no, that's not the claim he's making, okay? It's um, not voter fraud, and yeah. it's not widespread. He's not saying that, okay? They're looking specifically at election problems with ballots, election issues, you know, not voter, right? I mean, and so when, when this a story like this goes from a specific claim in a court and then gets chewed up by corporate media, um, 
it's amazing to actually see both sides, to see and hear from the person involved directly in this case. Um, and then to, to kind of, you know, see the corporate media, even someone like Tucker, you know, who is very good, I think, at being a very sophisticated uh, propagandist um, because like he's he's been recently the person that's given the widest berth to tell the um, unacceptable truths about certain things. And so I've had to go to him for like some uh, anti-war reporting. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this guy has been really good in some stuff and you have to be careful of the really good ones because the, there's always unspoken stuff. But anyways, why was I on this, this Zoom meeting? Because I want to put what is happening in Missoula on the map. I hear these national podcasters, um, you know, a lot of these podcasters are like, oh, people have to get involved locally. They have to get involved in city council and, you know, and understand what's going on at the county and school boards. And, and like, I've, like I've said to, to Monica Perez, I'm like, I feel like that kid just holding his hand up wanting to be picked by, by people like, hey, call on me. I'll talk about what it's like to be like in, in, a, in a legal fight over a 16-year uh, political establishment that's consolidated its power into the county. You know, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what kind of retaliation happens um, at your workplace, at your social circle, you know, through through different different ways. Um, let's let's figure out how how people are actually shut up um, in their daily lives with when they don't want to, you know, make some waves and make it awkward and uncomfortable to live their lives in their own backyard. So um, I'm doing what I can to put things on the map. Part of that includes Sean Stevenson. Um, continue. I continue, continue looking into um, what what happened to Sean Stevenson. And and part of that was a, a post. I don't know if you saw the my shark analogy. It, it was, oh, I've read. I don't have it memorized, but you don't have it memorized. You know, sometimes I uh, I just delight myself, and I, that's probably a sign I'm doing something I shouldn't. But um, because something like cartel like drug cartel behavior that's like some serious shit but uh binkley in last week's one of his drive time news blasts he talked about this case in georgia where this guy is being arrested for a triple homicide on a golf course and binkley goes into a really interesting sort of background on this guy's criminal history and all these cases that you know why didn't this guy get held accountable previously and yeah. and binkley's speculation that he puts out there is you know maybe this guy is a, a cartel decoy like there's some function he's actually playing that's hard to sort of track and understand um and so that's where i came up with this analogy of um you know what does cartel presence in a, in a small town look like you know you can watch a, a show like the ozarks on netflix that's fun um, but you can also think about it in terms of uh, shark behavior in the water and standing on the beach and, and kind of trying to look at what's happening with the sharks. And a lot of times you're going to see just splashes and dorsal fins. Um, but if groups of sharks are starting to fight, then you have things that are bleeding into the, the shallow end where the swimmers might be. And so you, you start running some risks of the innocent swimmers getting chomped. So that's what I'm writing. Um, and of course, I have to get kind of funny because I'm like, what if these fucking sharks, right, are getting sophisticated gear? They found above water markets, you know, and the deep sea divers that are supposed to be in investigating shark attacks, well, they've been fucking mermaids and getting it on with kelp balls, right? And so wow. what if the sharks have like have shit on on the on the deep sea divers that are supposed to be protecting the swimmers, you know, and now they're they got gear and they're walking around, you know, just being like, "Hey, hey, I'm a shark. You want some meth?" 
You want some you want some stuff to make you go go woo woo kid? No, like I'm a You know, when I was a middle school student, uh there was a dare officer in Great Falls who got busted for being a huge drug dealer. Well and then that was ironic. And they give you all the cool ideas for pipes. You're like, Oh, that's a cool pipe. I didn't think about that. What use cans and just make a little hole and then like have a little like yeah, charger there? Oh. So um, that was that was some of the, the the humble brag that I wanted to bring near the end of our of our conversation today because um, I really think people should check out the propaganda report and listen to the drive time news blast. It's it's the only thing that and, and got me into actually paying money through Patreon. I was pretty you know sp- speaking of righteous, which I am all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very righteous against Patreon. I'm like, no, they have censored some of my favorites. You know dangerous misinformation peddlers. Um, but someone like, like Monica Perez and Binkley, uh, I am so happy to financially support them on a monthly basis. Um, not just because it gives me some possibly beneficial access to my own narrative counterinsurgency against the, the narrative controllers here. But, um, I really feel less crazy when I listen to them talk about stuff because man, they rock. So Thanks for listening. I want to go back to the, um, do you have any questions about the redistricting stuff? Because they're not just redistricting. The the House I do want to go back to be that. the biggest thing. Um, because I, I think the, the dynamics in states, you know, it's, it's funny. I'm not going to stop talking about Monica, right? Um, or, or other podcasters. There, there are actual people looking at places like Montana to come and hide out, you know, to move to. And so... Um, as you're thinking about how, how demographics are going to break down in terms of political power, um, it really is, I think, interesting to, to figure out how quickly we can get changes in demographics. Um, housing might show changes in, in data. D- did you see by chance um, there was a, a report on, on trying to push back on the myth of out-of-state people coming in? And oh, I'm just speaking off the top of my head on, on this one. But... Um, basically acknowledging how there wouldn't be uh, relevant data for like another year in terms of in-state inflow. Um, yeah, you know, there's actually a lot of good places they can find that information. Mailing like addresses. The, the, change, yeah, the that, national that was what was referenced. change of address yeah. uh, is probably one of the biggest ones because it tracks people. Where did I see that? Life. What was that article? Change of address it was what was referenced as a as a good indicator or sign. Yeah, there's a lot of companies that even just buy that now uh, that do mailing lists. It's it's like when yeah. you when you try to check out and buy something now, it's like actually is this your address? You ever had that happen where uh-uh. you like type lane or you type it out or, and then it gives you a slight variation that looks exactly how the post office lists that address and wants you to change it so that there's less. Chance oh of yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as far as I go on the redistricting, I think there's a big sort of. Uh, elephant in the room here as far as this one's concerned and that is the fact that we have a uh, a state where republicans for two cycles now have won very big uh danes won by like 19 points uh and we have you know our first republican governor since 2004 and and yet uh they are on the losing side as far as the redistricting goes okay you would think that the party well how how does that work i i don't understand that so traditionally the five member commission has like two democrats and two republicans and then there's someone who's considered like a a non-political mediator so in this case it was sheila stearns who used to be with the u of m and she did the 
investigations uh, when the FBI and such came uh, to investigate oh. the university. But she decided uh, that wasn't she wasn't she able interim to do it. president too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's been involved with U of M in a pretty big way, and and to, at least as far as I was concerned, I she did was not know that. At least a fair-minded person, but she resigned, and so our illustrious Montana quote unquote nonpartisan Supreme Court stepped in and appointed a Democrat donor. Uh, to the commission. So now the Democrats have a 3-2 lead, so they can basically be in control of drawing everything. Was that that part of the the big sort of Republican push to try and get email... like emails from the, the well, Supreme Court justices? Well, they basically it? said that the, the Supreme Court is acting in a pretty expressly partisan manner. Right. And no part of state government really should be using government resources to be taking positions on like who should be elected or what bills should be passed. But the Supreme Court informally, every time a bill would come up in the legislature, would poll all the members and just see what they yeah. thought about it. Yeah. Well, the, the state Republicans wanted to see this information, and the state Supreme Court decided to just destroy it all. And they had the ultimate authority because by their logic, and these are the people at the very height of the legal profession in the state of Montana. Right. uh, Yeah. Mike McGrath, who's the the chief justice of the Supreme Court. If you don't know Mike McGrath, he was the Democratic attorney general from 2000 to 2008. Before that, he was a a county prosecutor for almost 20 years as a Democrat and a Democratic. Actually, I'm I'm a bit confused. I thought it was Yellowstone County, but from what I'm reading, we it's need actually to we need Lewis to like Clark. do maybe an episode just just on some of that. Well, I, want, stuff. I want to actually read this. Do you mind if I read this? Please because I do. want people Please. to hear yes. the background and the decision making on the highest man in the legal profession in the entire state of Montana and what his judgment displays. And I know it's a bit long winded, but this is the guy who decided that the. Democrats should have a 3-2 lead on the redistricting commission. This is a guy who spent almost 30 years professionally as a Democrat, and now if anything says anything about the judiciary, we're supposed to be, it's an independent commission. It's a nonpartisan commission. It's before, just complete uh, happenstance that Democrats have control over. Before you, before you, before you read this, I, I just wanted to emphasize that um, one big issue for me is prosec- the prosecution power, right? So the, yeah, the discretion. County, the, the county attorney's office, what can be prosecuted, what is not prosecuted. So Kirsten Pabst um, is our Missoula County, you know, lead prosecutor. Um, and so what these people do in these roles um, is very important, especially when they ascend to very high vaulted positions of power and influence. So so please. Yeah, it was just in the paper today that the Missoula County had dropped a rape case because they couldn't get the, what was it? The the girl who was assaulted in the tent on the Kim Williams trail. I saw the, just the headline. That was the Kim Williams trail. Yeah, they case. said they couldn't get the, the lady who was assaulted to commit to testifying at trial so yeah. that they had to drop the case against the guy. Okay, so this uh, is like a three-page excerpt. It's in a book. I think it's called Denial. It's it's basically given to all freshmen at Montana State, or at least was when I screen capped this, uh, to sort of give people examples where they can be completely committed to a false idea and be completely wrong and still be at like the highest levels of power. Uh, to show you the stages of denial in action, I need to introduce you to Mike McGrath, the former Attorney General of Montana. In 1987, a particularly horrific assault occurred in the city of Billings. Late one night, an intruder climbed through the bedroom window of an eight-year-old girl and raped her multiple times. The perpetrator, who left behind semen and pubic hair in the girl's underwear, was unknown to the victim, and she was able to describe him only in very general terms. Based on the description, an artist generated a sketch, and a police officer mentioned it looked like someone he'd busted the week before, a kid been fighting with another student in the high school parking lot named Jimmy Ray Bromgard. 
In short, he was arrested, convicted on the basis of the girl's testimony and a state forensic expert who claimed that Bromgod's hair matched that at the crime scene and sentenced to 40 years in prison. In 2000, the Innocence Project took up the case, tested the semen, and determined that it couldn't have come from Bromgard. Enter Attorney General, now Supreme Court Chief Justice Mike McGrath. McGrath accepted the DNA results, but proposed a novel explanation for them. Maybe, he suggested, Jimmy Ray is a chimera. In Greek mythology, a chimera is a monster of mixed origins, part lion, part snake, part goat. But in modern biology, a chimera is the result of the death in utero of one of two non-identical twins and the subsequent blending of two types of DNA in the surviving individual. Chimerism in humans is extremely rare. A total of 30 cases have been reported anywhere, ever. Nonetheless, Mike McGrath insisted that Bromgrad be subjected to more testing until his blood, semen, and saliva all proved genetically identical and unrelated to the material found at the crime scene. Then things got ugly. The Innocence Project sent the pubic hairs for the FBI to be retested, and those didn't match either, even though Montana's own forensic scientist, Arnold, Arnold Melnikoff, had testified in court that based on analysis, the odds of the hairs coming from anyone else than Bromgard were 1 in 10,000. The DNA mismatch sounded alarm bells throughout Montana, since Melnikoff was no less than the head of the entire state's crime lab, and in that capacity had testified in hundreds of other cases. When other forensic scientists reviewed his work in the Bromgard case, they concluded that Melnikoff's testimony contains, quote, egregious mistakes, not only of the science of forensic hair examination, but also of genetics and statistics. His testimony is complete, completely contrary to generally accepted scientific principles, unquote. Bromgard was freed after almost 15 years in prison, and he sued the state of Montana over the wrongful conviction. As part of the lawsuit, Peter Neufeld deposed Mike McGrath, a deposition that turned out to be unparalleled case of study of denial. In fact, the deposition turns out to be a case study of many themes of this book, rejection of counter evidence, the spinning of wildly elaborate hypotheses to protect core beliefs, the use of asymmetric standards of logic and reason, and above all, the prioritization of our own sense of rightness over truth, fairness, honor, and just about any other value you came, care to name. McGrath entered the deposition with one unshakable conviction, that Jimmy Ray Bromgard was still the prime suspect in the Billings rape. Maybe, the attorney general proposed, Bromgard raped the little girl but left no evidence behind, and the semen and hair in her underwear come from somewhere else. Like where, asked Neufeld, and here's where things get so disturbing and bizarre it's worth quoting from the transcript. McGrath, the semen could have come from multiple sources. Neufeld, why don't you tell me what those multiple sources are? McGrath, it's potentially possible the victim was sexually active with someone else. Remember, the victim was eight years old. Or it's possible her sister was sexually active with someone else, according to McGrath. The sister was 11. McGrath, it's possible a third person could have been in the room. It's possible. It's possible the father could have left that stain in a myriad of different ways. Neufeld, what are the ways? McGrath, he could have masturbated in that room in those underwear. The father and the mother could have had sex in the room in that bed or somehow transferred a stain to the underwear. The father could have had a wet dream, could have been sleeping in the bed, could have had an incestual relationship with the daughters. Okay, so that's the end of the transcript. So we have four possibilities. The eight-year-old was sexually active. Her 11-year-old sister was sexually active while wearing her sister's underpants. A third party was in the room, even though the victim testified there were no other intruders or the father had deposited the semen in one perverse way or another. Let me go to the next page. Neufeld continues interviewing McGrath. You have no basis to believe what happened here, do you? McGrath, Chief Justice of the Montana Supreme Court, quote, other than I was a prosecutor for 18 years and I've been in the criminal justice system for 25 years, I think it's a definite possibility. Neufeld, so that's your sole source then. McGrath, 
which is a pretty significant source. Moving from the evidence to the testimony, oh Neufeld and the Attorney General discussed the identification of the assailant, McGrath. I thought it was quite significant identification testimony, Neufeld. You thought that when a victim says on direct examination that I was 60 to 65% sure, and then when asked by the prosecutor, putting aside percentages, how sure are you that it's Jimmy Ray Bromgard? And she says, not very sure. You consider that to be very powerful ID testimony? Chief Justice Mike McGrath, yes. <laughs> I could go on. The deposition runs to 249 wow, pages, most wow. of them sounding like this, but I won't. McGrath's testimony weren't so horrifying. If the rape of a child, the reputation of her father, and the freedom of an innocent man were on the line, it would verge on comedic, surely by virtue of absurdity. If there's any saving grace to this kind of encounter, it's that, as Neufeld put it, when other people look at this stuff, they go, oh my God, this guy is crazy. And they did. Jimmy Ray Bromgard settled his case against the state of Montana for $3.5 million. Mike McGrath moved unsuccessfully to have the disposition, which I've just read, sealed from the public. So yeah. So, 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 okay, I have some thoughts. Man, thank you for sharing that. Um, that is intense. That is fucked up. Um, so some of my initial thoughts is, you know, he's not crazy, okay? Um, maybe he likes to fuck mermaids and the sharks have some, some dirt on him. Um, that's not a, necessarily a joke. Uh, the, the thing that immediately pops into mind, okay, because this does relate to Kirsten Pabst, and this does relate actually to the conversations I'm having with people like Monica Perez, right? Because um, some of the, the early interactions I had with Monica Perez was over this I idea of uh, prosecutors and other people in the criminal justice system experiencing vicarious trauma. And so being traumatized, being traumatized from the fact that um, most people don't get exposed to the slice of humanity that they are constantly exposed to, right? And so that, and that's a real thing. I don't want to like downplay that. The thing is, someone like Kirsten Pabst is part of a national organization of prosecutors that is taking up this idea of vicarious trauma almost as if, from my perspective, and this is opinion from me, um, to play a victim card for prosecutors, right? Um, to maybe deflect criticism. So the way that it's functioning here, Kirsten Paps is like, um, you know, we're prosecutors. There was a case in Missoula where uh, the victims were chopped up and put in a vat of acid and partially uh, dissolved in acid. And that fucked us up, right? Legit, legit. Yeah. Prosecutors, they got fucked up over that, right? The problem is that is like, okay, well, if prosecutors are experiencing burnout, if they're self-medicating with alcohol, which is part of why I drink a lot, you know, you kind of self-medicate because of the trauma you experience or that you're exposed to. Um, and then there's uh, like a high turnover rate. And so part of PAP's argument, from my understanding, is we need to, you know, have a trauma-informed way of supporting uh, prosecutors. And that's a real thing. I'm not going to say that there isn't legitimacy to that. I just get worried how that gets played out when prosecutors are making very important decisions about who to prosecute, who not to prosecute. Um, we should be able to criticize those decisions. Um, another worry I have is maybe the whole human decision-making process gets gaslit by this mentality and we decide that algorithms you know, and AI need to take over the decision-making process for the power of the prosecutor. That might sound extreme, uh, I think Monica Perez and Binkley were like, ah, no, we've, we've listened to Alison McDowell talk about, um, you know, human impact markets and all that stuff. So, and that's a lot of information that I just kind of blabbed about, but, um, I really do think that, that what, that intense, intense excerpt that you read, um, shows some level of trauma this guy's experienced and ego to hold on to this idea. 
and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I feel bad for, for anyone that has a mind that actually got into the detail of getting those scenarios described. Those transcripts from what he is saying, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess as a prosecutor, you're used to coming up with a bunch of fucked up scenarios to try and understand things and um, controlling or creating narratives in order to hold someone accountable. But my God, that really is like a textbook example of... Well, here, of, let's... Let's deep dive into it because I want to talk about yeah, something specifically. I'm just trying as you're talking to collect the evidence of this. So there's a guy who has been pretty known to law enforcement here. He's currently in jail waiting uh, charges of murder named is this Christopher Newrider. Newrider. Oh, yeah. yes. I was just looking through the jail roster and I saw his name the other day. Yep. So in 2008, uh, when he was 20 years old, he was accused of basically uh, with a accomplice I mean, I have every detail, but I'm looking at the Missouli and try to make sure I get all the details correct of, of, you know, agreeing to go home with the guy and then robbing him and beating him up and like hog time and leaving him for dead. And the guy basically only didn't die because a neighbor ended up finding him shortly God, after they right. left. And so new writer, uh, you know, he was uh, booked and he went to Montana State Prison for I think his sentence initially was 10 years. I'm not sure if he served the whole 10 years. So then let's go to. Uh, 2018. Let me make sure I go to the right one here. Okay. And th this is very uh, similar to what to what Binkley was talking about in terms of um, past criminal justice interactions with this case in Georgia, because 2018 is something that you're going to discuss before what ultimately happens with his why he's in jail now. Okay, so yeah, in, in July 2018, uh, it says 31 year old man uh, was arrested on suspicion of felony attempted deliberate homicide early Tuesday morning. Uh, Christopher Lance, a new writer, is being held, uh, booked on felony assault weapon. Uh, let's see if, where they describe what actually happened. So there was a... Was that the trailer park? It was... Um, Sherwood Street in the west side. Yeah. Looks like there yep. was a stabbing. Uh, I'm not sure if that's actually the trailer park or if that's just in the area. I think that's the Hollywood trailer park on Sherwood. Yeah. Officers found a 30-year-old man suffering from multiple stab wounds, but he was conscious and speaking with officers. The victim and the others arrived at the scene as the two identified subsects included Christopher Newrider. Okay. So shortly after this, this guy who, when he was 20 years old, decided to almost murder a gay man in downtown Missoula, goes to prison for 10 years, gets out within, it looks like, a year of him getting out or at least 10 years from the previous crime, uh, he's arrested again uh, for for that, stabbing someone That locally, has to be like a parole violation. A, I mean, like, I can't imagine him being out and not being quote-unquote on paper. He would probably come out of that situation on on some kind of probation or parole, I would I would assume. But Well, and this says in 2006, which is two years before, when he was 18, he was convicted of burglary in Cascade County. Okay, so this guy... Uh, has a burglary conviction out of Cascade County, goes to Montana State Prison for 10 years in 2008 for basically attempted murder of a gay guy downtown, a robbery and a beating. Uh, and then in 2018, he's back out and he ends up stabbing someone. So what does Kirsten Paps do to clean up the streets with this guy? Um, does she, you know, throw the book at him because he's a repeat offender and in some states this like three, three strikes and you're out would put you in prison for life? No, he gets out. He, okay. uh, yeah, he does out. not actually face anything. Kirsten Pabst, our great county attorney who can only prosecute 15 out of 115 rapes. Uh, but we keep electing her because she puts new plants in the interview room, uh, gets out. So here we have a guy with at least 
Uh, and this is leading up to this is leading up to a, a horrific uh, act of violence that he yes, is alleged this, to have committed. In um, the first week of December, uh, he ends up. Was that 2020? Someone. Was that 2020? Yeah, or? that was just last year. This wasn't even a year ago. That was that 2019 happened. or 2020? Because I thought. Oh, let's see. I'm gonna double check that too. Sorry, we have silence here. The the thing I'm looking at says suspect arrested in fatal Missoula shooting, December 9th, 2020. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, uh, this guy killed a 33-year-old man, Alleg- uh, allegedly named Sundance Ray Hernandez, uh, and this guy is dead now. Police found Hernandez dead with a gunshot wound to the head in the parking lot of the apartment complex. Witnesses later told New Rider was the shooter and left the complex before police arrived. This it was took daytime, about a day or right? Two to find him. Yeah, they actually were looking around the river and stuff. He was outdoors. They were using dogs and stuff to find. Oh, him. that's right. That's right. This was so like this a, I mean, daytime execution of some of some guy. Why is there no nothing about the newspaper? Why is this like if if you are letting violent criminals who have served time for burglary, ter- served time for uh, attempted murder, and then they go and get out and stab someone, attempt to murder someone else, and you can't keep that person off the street, and they go on to murder another citizen in Missoula, like where is the outrage about this? If if Mike McGrath can lose three and a half million dollars in three years of a guy's life just based on a hunch that little girls are apparently promiscuous and this guy is a chimera who is one of the Jesus wonders Christ. of all medical history. But we're told this is the most intelligent guy to redraw the, redraw the new districts and pick who's going to redraw the new districts. And, and like, well, one of, one of the best Paps has donated to Engen campaign. She's been hand in glove with this guy running city government. He's right there defending the police saying they need more money, no matter yeah. how many, how much racial disparity we have in arrests here in Missoula County, especially among the native indigenous population. That's representative, um, not of the actual population when they show Just up in, today, in prison. Just today, as jail. we're talking, I haven't looked to see if it's been lifted, but there was a be on the lookout for a 13 year old girl from Browning who is now missing. How are we doing on that issue, guys? You know, one of the interesting things, um, and I actually, when I was doing a, a Zoom meeting that I, I haven't worked on yet, but I, I actually did an interview with Binkley and Monica Perez um, and had miscommunication, so I wasn't totally prepared, and I have to kind of go through it a bit. But um, I held up a book, right, um, to prosecute. And this was a book that Kirsten Pabst is, is mentioned in reference. I think I've shown it to you. Um, and the reason why I have this book is because I saw it referenced in, I think it was like KGVO or some really brief article where she was talking about cases, I think, that was being brought. And it was like a, I think, a annual um, crime, crime report that she was discussing, something like that. And I couldn't find this book. I couldn't find it. It looked like Amazon and, you know, Abe books. And I, I like to buy first edition books. I'm pretty good at finding books. And I couldn't find this book. And so I actually, I think it was Allison Franz, a public communication person for the county. I reached out. I'm just like, hey. I like books. I want to get this book. Can you help me find out where this book is? And she she helped me find out it was, it was a consulting firm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this like self-published consulting firm. It's not something you can just find available. And so I had to like special order it um, and, and I got it. And it's just like boilerplate kind of PR crap. I mean, it's, it's like literally it seems like just created, you know, for the people that were involved to say that they were in a book about prosecuting stuff and like bolster in this kind of like artificial sort of fake way like the who's who have you ever heard of that Uh uh-uh every every this is if you like have a high school kid or something it's like a honor society or so there's these things just where you pay them like a hundred dollars i was yeah i was part of one of those things like the golden key honor society anything to put on a i like to hang out at the davidson college lounge that was one of the nicest places back when i was going to university of montana back in the day 
Well, that is, man, we, I think we've covered a lot of yeah, really good. Yeah, we're 90 good, minutes. We've hit a lot. We've covered a lot of great information, and I am really liking that deep dive that we did. I think there's there was more because a, a really weird coincidence is, you know, one of those scenarios that McGrath described from the father, you know, this, again, weird coincidence. Montana is a huge state geographically, but kind of small. Um, that we, we know that person. Um, I actually interviewed him. Um, not really knowing the details of, of much of this case, you know, you're familiar with this case a lot more than I, I was kind of aware of this. Um, but it's, it's just very interesting the way that power is playing out in Montana. And I don't see anyone else really talking about the redistricting efforts that are, that are happening in, no. in the way that you've actually put effort. You've taken statistical classes in college, right? You, you actually, uh, like, yeah, quite a few. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm just impressed because I'm like a creative but, type. But I don't like thing, numbers. Though, and so I look at that shit and I'm like, I wow. Did, you don't need any like high level statistical training. This is basically just ratios and percents. Okay. You need so to give a shit. Like you need to give a shit. there's like 100,000 voters in Missoula and how many voted for the Republican last time, we can estimate about that many. Okay. You know what? Republican you need to humble brag yourself up because I talked myself up. I don't want to look like a, a total like poet, ego driven, maniacal person. You're kicking ass, Tim. Well, thank you. Kicking I, I, ass. I'm glad ten people on Twitter appreciate it. Uh, I really the feed <laughs> when when I got feedback. I haven't gotten a lot of feedback on on the podcast, but when I got feedback, it wasn't like saying, "Hey, it was it was me telling me to tell you oh, how much they appreciated like hearing the perspective that you're you're sharing." Because well, thank you, all three of my fans. I love you all. We have come from different political areas. We have different kind of backgrounds. We might be white men, but um, I think there's a lot more to the conversations that we are having right now than what I'm seeing anywhere else. And so, I mean, I'm right. Every, everything that I just said, all the yeah. work I just did, why couldn't a journalist do that? Why yep. couldn't Martin Kidston do that? Why couldn't, you know, Gwen Florio when she's not writing, you know, Harry Potter fan fiction. I, I want them way. to be doing it. I don't necessarily want to no. be investing myself in, in alienating, um, my, my not, voice for my social networks this is, people is the are like, job oh. of the people in journalism this yep. is what they should be doing if they had any scruples and instead they're just religious nuts and their religion is social justice it just please this is the information we need to know when we go to vote Mike McGrath yeah, ran right. unopposed last time okay you think reading wow. that transcript or putting in an ad wouldn't be possible for anyone <laughs> to run against Mike McGrath and have a slam dunk seat on the Supreme Court but no, anyone no. that that listened to you read that, okay, they are now going to have a reference point for that name that sticks because that is some of the most like awful shit I've ever heard, you know, come from someone that just needs to admit that they were wrong. Yeah. You know, I've been wrong. I admit it. You know, we are wrong sometimes. That's that's being human. So on that note, um, if you want to be right and support people like us, you can always actually financially donate to to this effort. Um, I've got a, a couple links to my in my about page at Reptile Dysfunction. Um, you can always reach out to us. Uh, my email contact is willskink at yahoo.com. So W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K. I got on Telegram finally. Oh, so I think I'm going to start exploring that. It's to connect with a potential podcast uh, interview situation. But I've been Yahoo. It's kind of like when I hear people tell me they still have an AOL account. That's kind of what it, what it's like when I say I have a Yahoo account. With you know? Gmail. Yeah, even that. I'm just like I need to explore different ways of communicating. And the, and the the Yahoo can be where I just get all the ads for my cool like boutique clothing places that I go. 
and uh, and then I can actually communicate with other platforms. So reach out to us if you're interested. We do want to get into interviews, um, but we are just having so much fun on a weekly basis analyzing the the headlines, what's not being said in the local reporting, bringing you primary source reporting. Um, yeah, actual sit at a computer and work on a spreadsheet. That's what I did for four hours on Sundays. Man, so. I'm going to oh, pay you for that. We, we're going to take you to lunch or something. No, actually, you're going to come over and we're going to have some fun later today at a social event. So I, I look forward to the social event. Um, we're going to play some Legos and maybe some other stuff. We're adult men. Yeah, We are adult men. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.